while dehumanizing speech, words that dehumanize others, might be legally protected, that doesn't mean we shouldn't understand how important dehumanizing language can be in terms of facilitating violence, which is not legally protected. So, we, we, you know, the, these relationships are complicated. They're, they're difficult to navigate. Uh, we can look at things that are legally protected, but still understand their significance uh, in terms of things that aren't legally protected. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. I also have a book coming out called Bad Decisions, 10 Famous Trials That Changed History. Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment reads in part, no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection against the same. In other words... If you've taken an oath to support the Constitution, you can't engage in an insurrection against the Constitution. On December 6th, 2023, the Colorado Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a landmark case to bar former President Donald Trump from Colorado's 2024 ballot. Those arguments stem from a case called Anderson versus Griswold. It was brought by plaintiffs whose experts testified and cited Trump's violent rhetoric and statements about extremist groups, claiming his words ultimately led to an insurrection at the Capitol, United States Capitol, on January 6, 2021. In response, Trump's defense attorneys classified his words as metaphorical. Well, Colorado District Judge Sarah Wallace ruled that former President Donald Trump did in fact engage in an insurrection on January 6th, but she did not remove his name from the Colorado ballot. That failure led to an appeal of that ruling to the Colorado Supreme Court with a decision expected this coming January 2024. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about what constitutes rhetoric, what constitutes hate speech, what constitutes free speech. Did former President Trump's rhetoric lead to an insurrection on January 6, 2021? We have a decision that says so. But how powerful are his words? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing the impact of his rhetoric. We'll take a look at former President Trump's history of violent rhetoric and how that kind of extreme rhetoric can lead to political violence. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by Dr. Pete Simi, professor of sociology at Chapman University. Dr. Simi has studied extremist groups and violence for more than 25 years, Conducting interviews and observation with a range of violent gangs and political extremists, Dr. Simi recently testified on former President Trump's violent rhetoric in the Colorado 14th Amendment trial. Welcome to the show, Pete. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, Pete, let's get a little bit of background about you first. How did you get involved in sociology and, and how in the world did you get started studying extremist groups? Well, a bit of a long story. It's kind of been a lifetime journey of sorts. 
When I was five years old, I watched Roots, the miniseries. It originally aired on TV. I think it's still the the highest rated uh, miniseries in television history. And I and I remember, you know, a week long series learning about the history of the United States in terms of the central role that um, slavery played in our country's past history and the implications that um, it has still continues to have for for society in terms of uh, affecting social relations in, in, in so many different ways. And learning that at such a young age, it really did, I think, sensitize me to certain kinds of issues. That that those kinds of, uh, ex- that kind of exposure uh, continued throughout my childhood. My mom was very intentional in raising me to uh, learn about different types of social problems, including uh, racism, among other things. Uh, we watched a documentary together when I was nine years old. This would have been uh, 1981. Uh, PBS ran a, um, a documentary series about the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan, which the early 80s, late 70s was not a time unlike what we're facing today and have been facing over the last decade or so. That certainly had a major impact on me in terms of uh, wanting to understand how people came to uh, embrace hatred as as a central part of their worldview and an understanding of of themselves and other people. Uh, I still remember one of the Klansmen being interviewed. They they asked him, you know, what he would do if they came to power, if the Klan came to power, and he said they'd boat all the black people back to Africa. But of course, he didn't say it like that. And I just remember the hatred that uh, that that strong this strong emotion that came you know that he was expressing that came out of his mouth and the look in his eyes and I felt very moved in terms of wanting to understand how this person got to that point in their life. How does that kind of hatred develop? Where does it come from? Well, it, it's there's not a single path. There's not a single factor. It's complicated. It's deeply rooted in our society. Certain beliefs and emotions are are central. Does it go back to tribal? Does it go back to just simply you and I have to preserve what I have and keep you away from getting what I have? That's a big part of it. There is that that basis to it that always makes us susceptible to hatred. However, you know, understanding yourself as different from others doesn't require hatred. So you can have a sense of difference uh, without there being hatred. So it's it's that is a, a certainly an important piece of it and a starting point. But other things have to be present as well as that that tribal kind of us them you know distinction. What things? Well, you know, historical events, um, economic systems, cultural practices that become traditions over time. You know, these are things that can take many different forms. They don't have to take the form that supports or reinforces the development of hatred. Unfortunately, you know, when you look at, for instance, the role of slavery as an economic system and and the role that it played in our country's history, that lent lend you know that that really helped develop a way of thinking and feeling that pitted you know kind of that really helped develop racial categories as systems and really assign certain characteristics to these different racial categories that helped legitimize and rationalize slavery as an economic system and so that you know that's not something that had to happen it wasn't inevitable that and slavery's been time immemorial i mean since one culture has con- uh, conquered another, they've taken slaves. Well, sure. There is a, a substantial historical precedent for, for, for the role of slavery within societies. 
You know, since you started studying extremism as a small child, it, it almost seems extreme in itself. But what, what have you learned from 25 years of researching these kind of extremist groups? How would you say that they fit into society and society reacts to them? I think it's important to recognize that we're talking about a wide spectrum of groups and people. They don't all fit the same mold. I think sometimes when you hear the term extremist, white supremacist, anti-government extremist, these terms conjure up certain images, almost stereotypical images. While there may be some truth to those kind of conceptions, they're not the whole story. And what really exists um, is a much broader spectrum of people and groups that cut across, you know, a fairly wide range. And so you have people, for instance, I think one of the misconceptions is, is that individuals who are attracted to these types of groups, movements, are primarily uh, poorly educated and come from, you know, kind of lower economic strata of society. That's just simply not the case. You find people of a wide range of educational backgrounds, people from affluent backgrounds, people from the middle class, you know, all, all different socioeconomic status, all different educational levels who may be attracted to these ideas and who may, you know, become, you know, deeply involved in these types of groups and movements. So that right. I we think had, that's- We what, had two lawyers outside uh, holding rifles outside of their home in San Francisco, I would say that's extremist. Would you? Yeah, absolutely. And a good example of what I'm talking about. You know, when you talk about extremism, it's easy for us here in the United States to be able to say like Hamas is an extremist and the the 9-11 terrorists were extremists. But when you talk about extremist groups within our own country, how do we as a society deal with the kind of political division that's arisen and has it really arisen from these extremist groups? Well, one of the ways <laughs> we've dealt with it is to deny it, to neglect it, to uh, minimize it. And that's becoming increasingly difficult to do uh, over the last few years. But traditionally, that's kind of been a, a big part of the approach. And, the, and that allows it to fester in certain ways, has allowed it to fester in certain ways that make it even more difficult now to really try and be proactive and address this. Extremism is difficult when it comes from within because it represents your next door neighbor, potentially even your family member who may be steeped in, in these kind of beliefs and feelings. So A, it becomes, you know, it's much easier to recognize and develop a kind of defense system against, uh, for, you know, quote unquote, foreign, you know, outsiders, uh, those that represent a threat from, from outside your society. Uh, much more difficult when it's internal. So the recognition part is half the battle. But it, once you have the recognition, obviously, that's not enough. There, there needs to be some consensus about what we're going to consider acceptable and what's not acceptable. So, for example, threatening public officials. We're seeing more and more of that coming from various segments of society, and it's becoming mainstream and normalized to some extent. Normalized even to the point of physical attacks, for example, on Pelosi's husband. Let's talk about exactly what you just said here. Free speech, hate speech, rhetoric. How do we define these and where's, where do we draw the lines as to what's free speech and what's hate speech and what's just rhetoric? Yeah, well, we can put it, we, we, you know, historically, for good reason, have put a premium 
on the importance of protecting speech uh, across the political spectrum and, and including the most unpopular speech, right? It's e- always easier to protect speech that most people agree about and doesn't really represent anything controversial. Much more difficult to protect speech when it's more controversial or un- unpopular and potentially threatening. And so determining where those lines are are, are are difficult. They're not easy. But we can protect speech and still recognize that not all speech is protected and never has been within our framework. And certainly threats, for example, that we were just talking about fall outside of the line of protected speech. Threatening individuals in terms of bodily harm or uh, loss of life is, is not protected. Right. The famous example of free speech in the Supreme Court is that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So how does that fit in with hate speech? And how does that fit in with just simply what people might call rhetoric? But, you know, those are questions I'm going to ask in just a minute. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Dr. Pete Simi, professor of sociology at Chapman University. And you know, at this point, I should probably also disclose that I was also an adjunct professor at Chapman University teaching legal writing, but I don't think Pete and I ever met. Anyway, Pete, the question that I asked right before the break was, how do we deal with these three aspects of, of hate speech and rhetoric? And, and where's the line? Where does it be free speech to be able to say fire and but yet not be able to say fire in a crowded theater? How do you divide those two? And then where's the line as it extends out? Well, you know, when you use the term, of course, hate speech is not so much a, a legal term. It's more of a, a political term, you might say. And it's, if for, for, for researchers, it's a social scientific term because hate is a construct that we study. But certainly not all hate. Much of the things that might fall under the banner of hate are, are not against the law. And as, as it probably should be because hate is so broad. You know, hate, hate really can constitute a number of different facets of things people say, things people do, and certainly the things people believe. And we, we want to be careful about uh, providing, you know, the safeguards, the necessary safeguards to protect even something like hatred. But 
hatred also has a relationship to things like violence, for example. And so while dehumanizing speech, words that dehumanize others, might be legally protected, that doesn't mean we shouldn't understand how important dehumanizing language can be in terms of facilitating violence, which is not legally protected. So, we, you know, these relationships are complicated. They're, they're difficult to navigate. Uh, we can look at things that are legally protected but still understand their significance uh, in terms of things that aren't legally protected. Right. Well, I'd like to turn and, and get into what we came here to talk about. We've got kind of a little bit of background about it now. You testified as an expert on rhetoric and speech in a recent trial in Colorado for the 14th Amendment, the third clause of it about the insurrection and whether Trump's speech constituted insurrection from the standpoint of facts and violence that led to that insurrection or led to what the events that occurred on January 6th. Without really addressing the legal aspects of the word insurrection, let's talk about Trump's language and your testimony. Absolutely. First thing to understand about Trump's language is it doesn't start on January 6th, right? One of the, I think, most important aspects of understanding the what happened on January 6th, not only his, his speech, uh, but the entire occasion, the entire event, the, the violence that happened on January 6th, we, we have to go back in time. And so for Trump's role in the violence that happened on January 6th, there's a number of places we could go back as starting points. I do think one of the places that makes sense to start is his role in terms of before he you know, ran for president, even in terms of the, the role he played in promoting birtherism, which was the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama had been uh, was, was not an American citizen, was not a U.S. citizen, therefore was ineligible really to serve as president, uh, and his administration was illegitimate, basically. Trump played a major role in that, and that really kind of put him in a certain orbit, uh, along with folks like Alex Jones, one of the most influential conspiracy theorists over the last decade or so, you know, really actually two decades. And that helped develop kind of a relationship between Trump and far-right extremists that then continued to develop and really in 2015 kind of starts to take new form. And as he's running for president, ultimately elected to president. How did his uh, full-page New York Times ad play into this? Well, that's a great point. Yeah, that I say there's a number of different starting points that we could go back right. to. So um, we could certainly go before his his advocacy of birtherism, we could we could go back. I mean, there's you know obviously been allegations about his father being involved in the Ku Klux Klan. You know, there there's a lot of different starting points that we could look at in terms of his you know. And, and as you bring as you bring it forward closer to January sixth, there's been a whole bunch of code words and other kinds of things that happened. What what's all that about? Well, the relationship he developed with far-right extremists really is based on communication, first and foremost. And far-right extremists have a whole, you know, kind of infrastructure in terms of how they communicate with each other, how they communicate with folks who are not part of their community or not part of their culture. Uh, in other words, outsiders, they use lots of things like, you know, and these are somewhat common to, to people more broadly as well. It's certainly not exclusive to far-right extremists, but things like building plausible deniability by using doublespeak, that is using words that have one meaning to insiders and another meaning to outsiders, or at least an unclear meaning to outsiders. 1776? 
Yes, and, and specific to this case, yes, that that's a term that for insiders, you know, meant to call to revolution, violent revolution. Uh, whereas for folks who aren't steeped in that culture, they might just see it as a historical reference. Is that really any different the jargon that develops in cliques and in groups that uh, you know, like there's a there's a particular language that millennials have about you know abbreviations, LOL, and all the rest of those. Is that similar in style to that? Is that sociologically what is happening here? Yeah, exactly. No, that's the that's the sociological point is that when we talk about this you know, specifically related to far right extremists, specifically related to, you know, the former president, we are talking about generic social processes that are true for subcultures and communities of various sorts across the board. But what's distinct at least for in some respects uh, for far-right extremists is the relationship between these communication strategies and promoting and committing violence. Now, that it would be distinct from, for instance, like some of the groups you just mentioned, um, you know, generational cohorts like Gen Xers or uh, those others. Wouldn't it be distinct, though, from, say, subcultures like organized crime, which use very similar types of communication strategies? So lots of secretive codes, a lot, you know, these are common among groups that are organized around, you know, criminal activity and, and violence. So in that respect, far-right extremists are, are very similar to maybe more widely understood criminally oriented groups like, like the mafia. And one of the questions that Trump's attorney asked you in the hearing that you participated in was focused on the word fight. And he said, look, I'm going to show you a tape. You say that Trump is saying, you know, fight, go and fight, and that's inciting violence. But yet, here's a tape of all Democrats, all politicians, on the other side of the spectrum, using the word fight. How do you distinguish that? Well, what I tried to explain during my testimony was the importance of context. There, there isn't anything magical about any particular word per se. Words have meanings that are derived from their usage, which is really about context. And the examples that the attorney provided during, during the trial, you know, really they lacked any kind of pattern of where the speaker, or at least it wasn't presented as part of the questioning, there was no presentation of any patterns where a speaker or the speakers uh, had over time used certain phrases to promote violence, used certain phrases to endorse violence after it had been committed by, by their supporters. All of that was present. All of that was part of my testimony about how I came to the opinion I came to about Donald Trump's role in terms of January 6th and the pattern of the relationship he had developed with far-right extremists. So to really, ha you have to compare apples to apples in, in, in those questions that we were comparing apples and oranges. Pete, at this time, we're going to take another break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. 
And welcome back to Lawyer Lawyer. I'm back with Dr. Pete Simi, Professor of Sociology at Chapman University. We've been discussing the January 6th rhetoric and what leads up to it, but let's get to the point that was raised in trial. Is Trump's speech protected by the First Amendment? Is that free speech or is it speech that's hate speech or inciting violence? How do you decide that? Who decides? Well, that's, that's why we have a legal system. That's why we have judges. That's why we have juries. You know, this is the, the beauty of our system and why we need to be very careful about protecting it. I offered an opinion. I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not an attorney. My opinion was specific to the words and other things that he had done over time, and in, in particular, the speech that he gave on January 6th and how that was part of a larger communications, a larger set of communication strategies, a larger relationship that he developed with, you know, frankly, individuals and groups who had known histories of violence, like the Proud Boys, like the Oath Keepers, like the Three Percenters, people that he had, you know, in, in, in various ways praised uh, previous to January 6th in terms of the violence that they had committed. So th this was, you know, in that respect, then your words do matter and they certainly can cross thresholds, legal thresholds, and um, in, in those instances are, are not protected. It seems not. But let's see, you know, certainly you had a judge agree with you. Uh, the factual finding that the judge made was that the words were used to incite a riot and he participated in an insurrection. The argument then turns to the legal aspect, which is going to go to higher courts, about whether or not it is legally an insurrection. But I want to turn to a different question. Can we, and I don't mean to abbreviate talking about Trump, but in the speech that he has, but in that context of Trump's speech and the communication that he has with these extremist groups, how do the polarized parts of society communicate with one another? Everything I've read says that it's impossible for the either side to talk to one another. Well, that's a complicated question. It's not, a, you know, there are, I don't think there are any easy answers. I think it takes a lot of efforts at multiple levels. So, I mean, there's the most basic level at the individual level. You know, we all make decisions about how we conduct ourselves, how we engage in conversations, the commitments or obligation we may feel to engage in conversations in a civil manner and how how much do we hold ourselves accountable how much do we you know hold ourselves to task to to, to follow through on those and to maintain a, a civil posture even with people who see the world in fundamentally different ways and may stand for things that we find reprehensible uh, do, do we still you know, uh, kind of maintain our commitment to being civil in in the face and that's that's not uh, you know, first of all, it's easier for some people than others, especially those who are maybe the brunt of of the attack in in some in some respects are obviously uh, you know that's a much greater challenge uh, than than for those who may not be in direct fire of, of an attack and fire. I mean, in the figurative sense, not necessarily literal, but. Part of the problem is, is that we are dealing with things that is often unclear whether it's meant to be figurative or literal in terms of things that people are expressing and proposing and policies and programs that, you know, people are advocating for. So, you know, that, that makes it very difficult. We've got to, I think, find issues where we can reach some kind of bipartisan consensus. You know, one of the things I saw recently on MSNBC was an interview that Rachel Maddow did. 
with Liz Cheney. And, you know, they don't agree on much of anything, but they do agree on the importance of trying to build resilience around our democratic system that seems to be under attack in many respects. And so finding those kinds of opportunities to have conversations with people that you may disagree with about a lot of things, but you can at least agree about the importance of maintaining our democracy. I don't know, but can you? I mean, I from the rhetoric that I've heard, it almost seems like we have far-right extremists wanting to dismantle the government, wanting to stop social services, wanting to do as little regulation as possible. It seems like there's almost a fundamental disagreement on the basics of whether we are to be a socialist-style democracy or whether we are to be a democracy or, if at all, something completely different. Do you see that or am I off, off my rocker? No, I don't disagree with you at all on that. There are some major fundamental differences in terms of worldviews that we're dealing with that make it very difficult to have any kind of cohesiveness and not be completely polarized. You know, this is, uh, you know, it, it, certain things have to, I think, happen uh, in terms of you want to try and reduce polarization, but you also can't do that at the expense of allowing those who are promoting essentially anti-democratic measures to have some kind of, you know, be, be able to kind of have cover of sorts. You know, you can't allow anti-polarization to provide cover for anti-democracy. And so that is a definite problem. If people are, you know, endorsing or promoting, uh, for instance, voter suppression, that's just fundamentally anti-democratic. And there should be zero tolerance for that. And so we, those who see that as anti-democratic need to be sure to do whatever's possible to prevent that from moving forward. So there, there's some things that we, I think, have to have zero tolerance for, and, and then other things where we've got to maybe try and find some opportunities uh, for bipartisanship. I mean, I don't mean to be pessimistic here, but are we looking at the rise and the fall of the United States? Are we at a point where, you know, some of the Northwestern states are saying, I want to secede? There's parts of Texas that have said the same thing. There's different parts of the country that disagree to the point where, you know, are we united? Are we in any point a United States or do we need to be a divided states? Well, I, we are in a very dangerous spot. Uh, there's no doubt about it, in my view, at least. And if we think we are not susceptible to anti-democratic forces, to the attractiveness, frankly, of authoritarianism, because, you know, let's let's be we have to be real clear eyed about this. Authoritarianism has certain kinds of things that are attractive to people. Uh, obviously, history proves that point pretty clearly. So we have to be really clear-eyed about why some people are moving in the direction of being attracted towards authoritarianism and how fragile democracy is in the best of circumstances. And we're clearly not in the best of circumstances. Right. Well, you know, we've just about reached the end of our program. So it's it's time to kind of ask you my quintessential question of what questions haven't I asked you that I should have? I, I would say it's really kind of an extension of what we've been talking about is for for people to recognize the current moment and the danger of a Trump administration in 2024. First of all, it would the danger it represents is of a magnitude that is far greater than what we saw in 2016 for a lot of different reasons. So I 
I think we need to understand whatever a person's feelings are about the Biden administration, whatever person's feelings are about two-party system, to understand the threat that a Trump 2024 represents, uh, to really fully appreciate how much that will take us in the direction of guaranteeing, I think, really, not, not just threat, but really a guaranteeing of authoritarianism should he be reelected in 2024. Let's also let our listeners get in touch with you and uh, give us an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. Well, I can be reached by uh, e- at my email, which is simi at chapman, C-H-A-P-M-A-N dot E-D-U. And my colleagues and I have a new book that was just published, uh, Out of Hiding. And it's a book about the resurgence of white supremacist extremism uh, since uh, Barack Obama's election in 2008. And uh, we do conclude that book with some ideas about some uh, kind of prescriptions for how we can try and counteract uh, this type of extremism. Great. Thank you very much. Peter, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Well, this is Craig's rant about today's topic. You may think you already understand what I think about it, but I think Peter Simi's warning at the end of the show was probably the best thing that can be said, which is the November 2024 election will lead two ways. It's going to lead us to an authoritarian style government, or it's going to lead us to a continuing democratic style government. It's a major turning point in the country, and our country has already made a decision that may lean toward an authoritarian type of government in the future. And I think as a consequence of that, we may start to see some of the states make individual decisions that remove themselves from what's now called the United States, and we will become divided states. It's your choice. Well, that's it for Craig's rant on today's topic. If you like what you heard, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.